Staring at the ceiling fan above him. 33 years, 11 months, 15 days. It was just gone 5 a.m. Rita was long asleep. She was drooling slightly on his chest. Phil's arm was going numb, but he couldn't move it. He daren't. He wanted to stay like this forever. Earlier that evening, Phil had played piano at the Groundhog Day Festival Banquet, his usual boogie-woogie set, throwing in a little bit of Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini when Rita arrived. He had no idea he was going to play it and Till he was doing it. It was good that he could still surprise himself. Whenever he played it with his piano teacher, there was something about that melody that just spoke to him. Maybe because the song was used as the main theme in that movie, Somewhere in Time. Universal Pictures is proud to present Christopher Reeve. In which... Christopher Reeve falls in love with a photograph, then finds a way to travel back in time to the year 1912 to romance her. Somewhere in time. Someday, in the past, he will find her. Phil had first rented the film from Punxsutawney Library. It must be 20 years ago now. She was a famous actress in her day. 1912. 1912. Phil had become obsessed with that movie for a while. It was a hokey love story, and Christopher Reeve was as unsettling as always, but there were so many connections to Phil's time in Punxsutawney. For example, Christopher Reeve's time travelling also happened in a shitty hotel room. Also... Just like Phil, Christopher Reeve doesn't need a machine to travel through time. He simply does it through the power of self-hypnosis. He closes his eyes in his room and simply through the power of conviction, he's able to trick his mind into believing he really is in the year 1912. So when he opens his eyes, he's back there, free to seek out the woman in the photograph and convince her that destiny itself has brought them both together. All soundtracked by Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, the Time Traveller's Love Song. Later that night, Rita and Phil had danced together. Rita had wanted to talk, but it was just too hard for Phil to explain himself these days. He just wanted to dance, to hold her hand. Soon it was time for the bachelor auction. Someone twisted Phil's arm into getting up there. Rita had cleaned out her wallet to buy Phil back again. We hadn't finished talking, she said. For that kind of money, Phil told her. He'd say anything she wanted. Before long, they were sitting outside in the snow. 
Phil made Rita an ice sculpture of her own head. It should have felt stupid, like a joke, but it didn't. You might have thought it was impossible for an ice sculpture of someone's head to feel like a sincere gesture, but you'd be wrong. When you've lived enough years, you realise sincerity doesn't float on the tide of popular opinion. The less you say, the more you act, the more truthful life becomes. When Phil finally let Rita see the sculpture, she didn't know what to say. But Phil did. The words just came out of him. Something he'd never said before on any of the thousands of days he'd spent with Rita. He said, No matter what happens tomorrow, no what happens tomorrow for the rest of my life, for the rest of my life I'm, happy now I'm happy now. Because I love you. Then they kissed, just as the snow began to fall. Now, they were lying together on Phil's bed, his arm around her, a tiny patch of her saliva soaking into his shirt. Phil looked at the clock. It was 5.51. When the clock reached 6am, the day would reset. Rita would disappear. All memory of this night would be erased, except his own. There is no such thing as a perfect day, thought Phil. All days are perfect. All experiences are to be savoured. The moment is all we have. But nevertheless... I would do anything, anything, if it meant that I could extend this moment right here for even just a couple of hours, anything to just push back the clock, just one more hour, just 15 minutes, five minutes, all right, give me, just give me five more minutes. Phil watched the ceiling fan. There is no such thing as a perfect day. All days are perfect. All experiences are to be savoured. The moment is all we 23 years, 11 months, 16 days. The wet patch on his shirt was gone. Phil's arm was no longer numb. He lifted it. Slowly moving it through the space where Rita's body once was. Phil went to the bathroom. He brushed his teeth. He had a shit. After that, he went back, sat on the bed, listened to the sound of his heartbeat. Phil didn't go out to Gobbler's Knob that day. It was the first day he'd not turned up for work in maybe over a hundred days. Today, though, couldn't bear to see Rita. Not so soon after she vanished from his bed. Instead, Phil just picked a bench 
and waited out the day. The one on East Mahoning Street. There was a bare oak tree across the road. Phil just stared at the tree, trying to block out the rest of the world. His heart felt like a jagged stone. Maybe, thought Phil, lighting a cigarette. Maybe he should never see Rita again. It's easy to avoid one person in a sea. Even easier if you knew what Phil knew. On a day like today, a day where Phil didn't turn up for his job, Phil knew Rita's movements on a day like this all too well. Right now, Rita would be having a coffee with Larry in the tip top. The time was... 12.04, so yeah, right now she was just about to order a carrot cake. Rita always ate when she was angry. Rita would have just finished telling Larry that Phil should lose his job. Phil knew to speak. He'd gotten close enough to hear it before. Rita would call Phil incompetent. She'd call him a creep. She'd be talking about his hair. She hated him. On these days, Phil thought again about last night he knew that there was no such thing as a perfect day but still to look into Rita's eyes again and see no recollection of last night Phil just he didn't think he could take it Phil tried to empty his mind lose himself in the tree across the road its branches black bronchioles bifurcating into the sky. All the things that Oak had seen. How long had it taken to get that tall, that strong? 30 years? 40? Phil had been in Punxsutawney almost as long. Maybe, thought Phil, maybe I'll just sit here for a couple of years and meditate on this tree. I'll sit here and look at this tree until all memory of Rita leaves my brain. At that point, the boy climbing the tree slipped from his high branch and slammed face first into the hard concrete below. Oh yeah, thought Phil. The kid. In the 11 years since Phil first learnt of Charlie's accident, this was the first day that he'd forgotten to catch him. A passing car screeched to a halt. An elderly couple ran to the young boy's aid. Phil recognised the couple as Betty and Chuck from the wool shop down the road. They turned the boy over to make sure he could breathe. A jogger ran to find a payphone. Phil left to get a drink. He felt terrible, of course, but after a couple of scotches, he began to see things a little clearer. If I can forget the kid once, thought Phil, maybe I can forget him forever? And if so, who knows? Maybe I can forget other things too. Phil looked at the ice in his tumbler. Each piece 
looked like a sculpture of Rita's head. Three little decapitated Rita heads, slowly dissolving in a lake of scotch. Anything is possible, thought Phil. Anything's possible. every day. That's what the sign said in the laundromat window. The first word, presumably open, had been torn off by, presumably, some weird vandal. But I'd seen the sign before, of course, never at this exact time of day. A fact confirmed when he turned his head idly away, swivelling his glance to the left as he strolled by just in time to see something he'd never seen before. A sparrow landing on a power line across the street. That was it. Just a little moment. Nothing too remarkable, unless you wanted to remark upon it. Which he did, that night, as he lay in bed and thought, I wouldn't mind seeing that again. And that was easy enough. He'd gotten very good at a lot of things over the course of the cycle. His wristwatch was purely ornamental by this point. Phil's internal clock was calibrated hyperquartz, beyond atomic. Even though he led a different morning the following day, there was nothing to end up back outside the laundromat at the same time when he strolled on past and allowed those words all day, every day, to come into view. There was no curiosity no suspense. He knew that he could turn his head to the left at just the right moment to catch the sparrow. There you go. See it touch foot to whatever power lines are made of, touching down just so, as though a musician in an orchestra Phil was conducting. It was a small victory, but these were what he made his meals of. For a while he made a sport of it. Tried to see how many different ways he could get there. How many different days he could live leading up to that same moment. How late he could rise from bed. How far on the wrong side of town he could strand himself and still meet that moment. He felt a burgeoning affinity for the bird. A fond conspiratorial camaraderie with this twittering fool. He knew that the camaraderie was in his head. The bird may as well have been a robot. He tired of it, eventually, as he did of everything. This was, of course, the problem. Why couldn't the world just get tired of me for once? Just once is all it would take. The next day, instead of heading past the laundromat, 
Phil went for a jog out to the limestone quarry. Personal fitness was a real bitch. The body remembered no improvements. His internal grumbling was interrupted when up ahead, where the road opened into sky and a bright puffy cloud hung there like a blank slate. Suddenly the words, all day, every day, superimposed themselves gigantic on the grey cumulus. The words then slid to the right as though viewed by a panning camera to be replaced by a diagonal line which slid into view on which an enormous translucent sparrow alighted. That night in bed, Phil thought again about what he had seen. It was a kind of after-image. Like the sun on your eyeball, or he was getting excited now. Like how that one time Larry had left one of the studio monitors on overnight. The WPBH logo had been indelibly burned into the tube, ruining it. Why, Phil wondered, had he never experienced an after-image before? Perhaps he was just getting more sensitive. As he lay there, he began to imagine a distant future. Suppose he could burn in an afterimage. Not just of a little moment, but of a whole day. Suppose he lived the same day over and over, so many perfect times that it all burned in. So, when he finally did change his routine, that whole alpha day would play over the top of the new one. Then what if he repeated the new day? The beta day has got the alpha day burned in on top. Suppose he repeats that until the beta day is burned in. But remember that the beta day included the alpha day burning. So now he's living a 24-hour after-image replay of two days at once. And then, yeah, I'm getting it, he said to himself. Okay, but let's just keep thinking this through. Then I'll switch up to a third path. Lock that in. And a fourth, and a fifth, and frankly, I don't care how many it takes, but the layers just build and build, ghosts of ghosts on ghosts of ghosts, until eventually, they'll just all cancel each other out, won't they? Turn everything into white noise. That thing that broadcasts after the end of the programming day, in the no man's land of the clock. In some places it's called bugs, because they see it as black dots on white. But here we see it as white dots on black, so we call it snow. It was always the thing that put Phil to sleep, always soothed him when nothing else could. Always opened a door to a soft escape from being awake, from being Phil, from being. Could he really do it? generate his own permanent snowfall. Sure he could do it. He had the skills. This was his escape hatch. The way out was to burrow deeper in. How long would it take to perfectly burn in the Alpha Day? Maybe 500 years till it's indelibly imprinted. And another 500 years to burn in each day after. So in turn, to turn everything to snow, he'd need to repeat the process, what, a thousand times? So, 500,000 years, give or take. Well, 
what else was he going to do with his time? And if, with all his rigorous repetition, the world got tired of him, well, that was its problem. first question was to obviously clarify the nature of the business. Yes, correct. That is exactly what we do. Thank God for that, thought Phil, and reeled off the model number of the analyzer that he was after. Okay, an analyzer? Do you know what uh, microscope it's going on? Of course he did. Fucking idiot. He got to his feet, the phone under his chin, and he pushed Ned Rice and Sofa back over the mark. This was indeed just sensational stuff. It was only so wide by about so long, no bigger than a dime really. And it was, well, that was it. Phil didn't know what it was and that was just wonderful. Like a a rush, an adrenaline hit straight into the veins. The known is finite, yet the unknown is infinite. infinite. And that search is man's endless endeavour. Thomas Huxley had written that, some English 17th century biologist with ludicrous sideburns. Christ, Phil hated Thomas and that quote, because for Phil, well, there wasn't any unknown left. His endless endeavour had turned all unknown into known, a complete deforestation of mystery. He knew word for word Huxley's Discourses Biological and Geological, 1894, Huxley's Lay Sermons and Addresses, 1870, and On a Piece of Chalk, fucking hell, 1868 an analysis of soil in a place called Norwich in England. Man, Phil knew the soil data for every goddamn shit stain of a suburb from here to Hanoi. Okay, yeah, that would be... um, So when you have these fibres on the microscope, so... um, Pittsburgh City Library, a fucking dive where Phil had spent decades whilst combing the sector southwest of Punxsutawney for anything unknown. He'd pored over every single book in that library three times now. He knew the shelves, the ceilings, the basement, the roofing tiles. He'd broken into every single house and read each book at least twice. Today, Phil was after a microscope. Oh, Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah, we would deliver it to there, yep. The look of disdain on the librarian's face each time he borrowed a book. Borrowed, that's a joke. He'd just walk in and, well, you know. He knew the librarian was called Ruth. 
Christ, he hated Ruth. He'd punched that face over and over. He'd once enjoyed it. To be honest, he'd done much more than that to everyone because, well, he, he just could. But now he just felt nothing, felt nothing at all, until today. He needed the Walter QZT Trinocular 2000 Stereo Zoom Inspector delivered the same day, obviously. Is that at all possible, asked Phil? Um, yes, as, you know, as long as we're available and I have it in stock, if you're in Punxsutawney, we can, we can get it to you, yes. It would have to be the same day he wanted to be sure of that. Uh, Punxsutawney is, you know, that's a, you know, that's probably a three, three, three and a half hour drive for us. It's out in the, kind of in the middle of nowhere. He hadn't witnessed anything of interest in years, millennia even. But here, behind Ned Ryerson's sofa, a stain. Phil, I sell insurance. A mark. It was to feel beautiful. A series of stains, if we're being pedantic. And Phil is being pedantic. Um, how are you gonna like use them? Is it, you're just gonna take these fibers and put them on a slide and then just put them right on the microscope? You're not slicing them, preparing them, or, or anything like that. Phil had covered every inch of this land, everyone's house, looked at everyone's genitals, bank statements, photograph albums, scientific papers. He craved anything unknown because for him, the unknown was like, well. I don't know really. Phil knew the why, the how, the when. He knew the everything except for that stain. Now don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck I remember you. Every day Phil would ask and Ned would deny any knowledge of that stain. But there was something in his denial the exaggerated goofball expression he'd donned to fool his prospective clients was dropped for a fraction of a second. Ned Ryerson, you old fucking dog, thought Phil. Oh, blood samples, like down to individual blood cells? Was that blood mixed with semen, thought Phil? Phil? But that stain, the stain... The patterning, its shape so mysterious. This was his quest, his hit. He'd binge on that stain, he'd analyse it, draw hypotheses, test the data, he'd dine out on every last drop of information from Ned Ryerson's stain. Because this is all that was left. Okay, great, yeah, thanks for the call, I appreciate it. One final hit. Yeah, I look forward to hearing from you, take care. And then... Nothing. On the 2,452nd day, 
Phil wakes up with someone else's bad breath. A cupped hand to the mouth and a cautious sniff confirms it. Taste is thick, like mould blooming on weak old bread. This is a new development. Repulsed fascination makes his elbows tingle. Phil inhales a few more times, swills the sourness round his mouth. He brushes his teeth three times. The second-hand breath still clings. He knows this breath is not his, no remnant of the night before. It is an uninvited guest. Downstairs, the ever-cheerful hotel owner greets him. Olivia, slight limp, a soft spot for shih tzus and cheap sherry. He aims his responses towards his chest. With her warm smile intact, she takes a decided step to the side. Phil can narrate Olivia's thoughts as well as his own. He knows she can smell the dead thing in his mouth. Her disgust is also his. Uppity city types, she thinks, her thoughts echoing round the damp cave of his skull. All those fast, nasty words rotting behind their teeth. Phil shuffles away unnerved by the ring of Olivia's thoughts in his head. They have not come to him secondhand, assumed or predicted. They are as clear and as seamless as his own inner monologue. Phil decides to seek solace in breakfast. He sits, dutifully shovels oatmeal into his mouth. His thoughts, for now, his own. Phil is convinced this new breath holds a message. The loop is a muted hell, but it is his hell. Now it is under threat by a sly, insidious force. Phil feels a twinge at the top of his spine, growing into an angry ache in the time it takes to turn the corner. On schedule... Ned yells his name. Phil! Phil? Is that you? Hey! Ned's face looms, as white and constant as the moon. Phil endures the reliable torrent of insurance patter. Smile, nod, smile. Just as Phil feels a sharp jab at the base of his neck, Ned winces also. In eerie unison, both men reach up to the same spot. You're back playing up too, Ned says his mouth pruning in agony. I tell you, not slept with a straight spine since I had a mullet in 84. My ache does feel historic, thinks Phil. Then his brow furrows with another stab of pain. Ned's face mirrors his, the two of them locked into a wobbly pas de deux. Wince, shake of head, grimace. Ned looks at him, a brief flicker of distrust in his eyes. Does Ned feel the hijacking of his private twinges? What is happening to him? Phil makes his way to the square, a full-on squabble erupting between his ears. Phil can distinguish his own feelings from the desperate rubble of others. 
but he has to concentrate hard to drown out the imposters. They fling themselves at him like little rubber pellets, faded grief, nausea, an errant tickle around the ribs. He walks past the crowds waiting for the groundhog to appear. Amongst them, he imagines his twin in sewage breath. The only solution is to empty my head completely, thinks Phil. Phil imagines a suction pump applied to his tongue, pulling the stink up and through its long tube. Every time he feels the start of a new sensation, he wills the tube to suck it away. Backache, down the tube. Blueberry pie craving, down the tube. The brush of an all-too-brief kiss, down. 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 He stands outside Puxatawney Library, its wide windows reflecting the sun. For a handful of minutes, Phil's head is finally, blissfully empty. He holds onto nothing. His body is a happy, efficient accident. He feels no pain, no cravings and no dread. His mouth tastes like a long, cool ribbon of glass. Through the window... Phil sees an old man wearing a maroon jumper and a kind face. The old man is reaching for a book on a high shelf. The shelf trembles. Phil knows, of course, what happens. He knows that the book's arc is grand, its pages fanning out like an accordion. He knows that the book is the heaviest kept at the library. That the corner of the book makes a neat indent in the man's skull. That Tina, the librarian, will stem the flow of blood with her own pale pink cardigan. Phil knows the man in the maroon jumper's name, Gerald Abelson. Although, later, when asked in the hospital, Gerald will not recall this nor the name of his wife, nor his address. As if a vacuum had reached in and sucked all the Gerald out of him. The moment the book makes contact with Gerald's head, Phil is down. His thoughts scatter. There is no blood, no dent in his head, no sense to be found. All the emotions and voices and feelings that Phil sent away down the tube They all come flooding back now. Phil lies on the cold ground, a sagging vessel of lost property. For every feeling he pushes away, 15 more come in. Teenage heartbreaks squat in his chest. Perhaps it was Ellen's. Poor 14-year-old Ellen, pointlessly in love with a boy who'd left her for Casey. A girl with bigger breasts and both ears pierced. Phil pinches his naked earlobes and sobs. Then, nostalgia. Phil remembers that four-month stint in a Dexys Midnight Runners tribute band. Ron, the bassist, who had the best moustache Phil has ever seen, especially since Phil has never actually seen it. Phil lies, bleeding out on the pavement, 
His back aches, his heart breaks, and the whole of history rides away from him on horseback. He could murder a glass of sherry. Where are his keys? A baby is crying and somehow it's his fault. His mum has promised him a lollipop. How much blood has he lost? His spine is a shattered pole of he glass. He sat on a stool, his feet dangling, fingers sticky. He wants to punch a wall. the itch behind his knee. There is a long shadow by the door, waiting. A stranger's laugh. And Phil feels himself getting drunk on it, swilling it round his mouth till the stink shrinks to the very back of his open throat. Sandra is one of several administrative staff at the St. Francis of Assisi School, Punxsutawney. She sits at her desk folding the day's exclusion letters into perfect Z-folds. The paper makes a crisp, satisfying line where it is folded, sharp and simple. Andrew will be excluded for one day for foul language. Maggie will be excluded for a week for poisoning the form room fish. The letters slide sleekly and handsomely into their envelopes. At lunch, Sandra doesn't go to the staff room. She can't be bothered. She pushes down the blinds and practices holding down her eyelids, applying gentle pressure then looking up at the ceiling strip lights. Earlier this morning, when Sandra first got up, she saw wavering halos around the light bulbs, glowing in every colour. She doesn't know why. If she could just get it back. The light was like oil in a puddle, looking so real in the air. Impossible to touch, but she knew that it would feel like satin if she could. Sandra presses, but the strip lights are still cold and sharp around the edges, still only white, clear mints. She thinks. She doesn't care if somebody comes into the admin office and sees her pressing on her own eyes, like they are two enemies she is trying to drown in shallow water. Or if she does a little bit, she decides to say it is a preventative measure against cataracts. 
the new receptionist comes in holding a plate of tuna salad. Sandra hears her footsteps coming and says in a voice much louder than intended, It is a preventative measure uh, against cataracts. Oh, says Belinda, good for you, honey, and takes her tuna salad elsewhere. It would be nice to be able to tell someone about the colours without feeling dumb, Sandra thinks. She imagines someone coming in and asking, what's up? And being able to tell them everything. Someone she could trust like that. Outside now, a strain of birdsong is coming in. Sandra can't place it. Dad is a birder, and often showed her, when she was little, the bird book, the one with illustrations, and written out descriptions of the voices of the birds. The common yellow throat is supposed to sing, Witchity, witchity, witchity. In the grey air, she can see his breath making a little plume of steam as he sings. The man in the tree, in his regular clothes. He has climbed fairly high up, holding branches in his left and right hands like ski poles. He looks like someone in a trance. Like someone who can see something nobody else can. Like her ex-girlfriend on acid, amazed by daytime television. His smart brown overcoat flaps in the wind. For a man with a face so well-shaped for being sardonic, he looks sincere, like a good listener. The man singing in the tree makes a series of complicated, deft movements with his mouth. He makes a small whistling dot of it. Then he opens it so wide she can almost see his teeth glinting, although he is far away. Hundreds of birds coming down out of the sky at a gentle speed, like a pillow torn open, dropping feathers. They are all the birds of the land crows, blue jays, geese off the water, eagles, a heavy, moody vulture, doves, chickadees. Grackles, birds, 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 a flurry of them, faster now, completely covering him from view, completely covering the tree in new soft leaves, the boughs drooping under the weight. Sandra closes her eyes and finds... He is like the light containing all the colours. He makes it come back for her, as if she had told him exactly what she lost. It is as if he has been practising for years to show her. She opens her eyes. There is a movement, a great shaking of wings and the birds lift away together. The man, his arms raised in song, is being carried away into the air, 
by this springily connected ball of birds. They go easily, as if it is just a matter of catching the air current correctly. Does he seem to salute her? once known as the Cherry Tree Inn. The entity has no words to speak. It has no needs or wants, no intentions. Simply by existing, the entity claims its inalienable right to exist. It does not open what was once its eyes does not defecate nor urinate from what was once its schlong. Every 32 minutes it takes one breath of air into its lungs. The limbs of the entity once known as Phil Connors have not moved for 3,000 years and yet there is no atrophy. If the entity wanted, it could jump up from its bed this second. It could dance to Charleston, smash through this hotel window. It could murder every living thing in a 10 mile radius and no human could stand in its way. Every single branching outcome would have already faced a thousand times over. It could walk naked towards you through a volley of bullets without so much as a scratch. But these are ancient myths now. The century of blood has long faded, as has the century of learning, the century of self-annihilation. The brief beekeeping phase. After a millennia of searching, the entity has chosen a final, single path. It has chosen to do nothing, to be nothing, to remove its influence on the universe entirely. Perhaps with this decision, this was the moment that the entity once known as Phil Connors finally became God. 
Now that the entity has removed itself from the world, each day plays out exactly the same as the last. No ripples in causality, no variance at all, not even at a subatomic level, it seems. The flypath of the butterfly outside his window seems chiselled in stone. After millennia of redrafting, the universe is written in permanent ink once more. And with each day that passes, that ink soaks deeper and deeper into the paper. With each day that passes, life in Punxsutawney becomes louder, clearer. The entity once known as Phil Connors can now feel the vibration of every single insect in the lawn outside. It can feel the frequency of every light bulb, the wattage consumption of every electrical device. It can taste the moisture on every forehead. It can hear the books in the library decomposing. It knows the tumescence of every dog penis the volume of every dying breath. This single day traced over and over and over again until it became the whole universe. Like that golden phonograph record they shot in the space. A four-dimensional sculpture of the universe, all 3.4 square miles of it held gently in the entity's mind like a snow globe. On what used to be called a nightstand, the number wheel mechanism of the flip clock rotates the hour page from five to six and... the universe is reborn. 10,000 years. The dead skin cells on what used to be the forehead of Phil Connors reincarnate themselves as the room fills with music. They say we're young and we don't grow. We won't find out and we don't know. In just under three minutes, the radio alarm will automatically turn itself off again. But in this brief musical intermission, the entity hears its own creation myth. The waltz time oboe of I got you babe swirls around the entity like a shroud, like a shawl, end and beginning the Alpha and the Omega existence and non-existence, the voice of Salvatore Philip Bono and Sherilyn Lapierre Sarkeesian vibrating through everything as if the words were spoken by the planet core itself. And with these words, the entity once known as Phil Connors makes its one and only movement, its lips silently open and closed around the chorus, the voice of the entity and the voice of the universe, each speaking to the other. And that same 
gentle register, like the voice of the smallest kid in class, when they pick up the school guinea pig, hold it to their lips and say, I've got you. I've got you. Imaginary Advice So that is the end of Imaginary Advice for another month. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thanks also to uh, my incredible guests. Kim Noble has a podcast series coming out on Spotify this August 2020. Uh, I've been lucky enough to listen to some of it already and it is amazing so yeah keep an eye out for that show it should be appearing very soon Vanessa Kasule has two collections of poetry A Recipe for Sorcery and Joe Riding the Storm follow Vanessa on Twitter at uh, Vanessa underscore Kasule that's K-I-S-U-U-L-E also thanks to Lenny Sanders Lenny's poetry pamphlet Poacher is available right now from the Emma Press Lenny also has made uh, performances for museums with the group Curious Things and does cabaret as part of the Manchester-based duo Dead Lads. And finally, uh, thanks to Daniel Coburn, uh, Daniel's latest film is a short called God's Nightmares, which is about what the title says. Uh, also, if you get a chance to see Daniel Coburn's film lecture, All the Mistakes I've Made Part 2, please watch it. It is an incredible piece of work. Also, uh, thanks so much to the actor Rachel Afori for reading Vanessa's story. Also, thanks to Tim Clare for reading Daniel's story. My name is Ross Sutherland. If you support the podcast on Patreon, Patreon, goddammit. If you support the podcast on Patreon, uh, thank you so much. If you like the show and you want to support it and help it keep going, you can sign up at www.patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Ross G Sutherland. Um, I'm an indie operation. It's just me and my house doing all the jobs. Um, I appreciate any help keeping the lights on. If you can't afford any money, I, I totally understand. Don't feel bad. If instead you'd be willing to give me a review on iTunes or post about it on social media... Uh, that would make a huge difference people rarely if ever stumble upon the show people only ever really come to it through personal recommendations so spreading the word makes a big difference um if you listen to the sex in the city stories i did recently i'm just finishing a making of episode to release exclusively to patreon supporters talking about some of the development processes behind the writing um so yeah that'll be available to any new subscribers too okay that's all uh Until next time, Uh, I got you. Stay safe and um, take care.